0: Hey, welcome to The Stephanie Stevens Show, where I help you discover the power of communication and the keys that unlock the doors to freedom in every area of your life. Well, hello, my sweet and amazing friend. Today, I am coming to you talking a bit about autism. Now, this is particularly for you if you have a loved one who has a brand new diagnosis of autism. And maybe this is a son or a daughter of yours, maybe it's a a niece or a nephew, maybe it's a granddaughter, grandson, neighbor, really doesn't matter. If you're close to someone who's recently been diagnosed with autism, then I want to offer you some love and some support and a little bit of guidance today. So I'm titling this episode, Autism in the Beginning, Let There Be Light. (laughs) And I am going to do a three-part series on this journey that is called Autism. I'm also going to do a series on Autism, the Siblings Speak, because my son has three siblings, and it's so incredible to get their perspective. And I think it's really important to hear from them and to validate their experience in the journey as well, because certainly it's not a typical family dynamic or experience when you've got a brother or a sister who has this type of diagnosis. So first things first, the reason I wanted to say in the beginning, let there be light, is because when something is newly diagnosed along these lines, there are so many mixes of emotions that go with it. There is concern, there's confusion, there's anger, there's sadness, there's grief, there are so many, there's shock, That initial diagnosis can often be a trauma in and of itself because it's a shock. You're hearing something about a son or daughter of yours that is something that feels, in my experience, very out of my control. Very out of my control. And I shared the experience I had with my very first panic attack shortly after my son was diagnosed. And uh, uh, if you haven't heard that, please go back and listen to the first three introductory podcasts that I did when I launched this particular podcast, because I do share with you the experiences I had with the onset of anxiety as a result of, I mean, it, it wasn't because of the diagnosis of autism for my son. However, something that was going on with my son was the trigger for my very first panic attack, which led to a, a long journey with anxiety and, and panic disorder. And so the very first diagnosis can in and of itself be a shock. You're hearing some news that is, in some degree, to some degree, traumatic. feels out of control, it feels confusing. There's so much information, and yet this brand new thing has been handed to you and you're not really quite sure what to do with it yet right? So I want to share a couple of things with you. First things first, you are not alone. You are not alone to the tune of one in 40 children these days, at least in the United States, being diagnosed with autism. One in 40. So you're definitely not alone. There are more support mechanisms in place now than ever before. My son is now 25. There were not as many support mechanisms uh, when he was young being diagnosed, but there are now. And so I will, of course, encourage you to reach out to those support mechanisms as you find them available in your area, whatever country and whatever area you live in. So first, let's talk about what is autism? What is this thing uh, that's called autism? Uh, A lot of people say their loved one is autistic, That's, I guess, personal preference. I don't particularly use that term. I don't like it. When I talk about my son and I share with others, here's what I do. I say my son has a diagnosis of autism, and I say that for a couple of reasons. I don't like labels. I don't like labeling. I don't want to marry him to that label. I don't want that to be who he is or how he's identified because he's an incredible soul. I don't want to slap some... Label on him or say he's autistic. I say he has a diagnosis of autism because here's the truth: they can't really pinpoint exactly what autism is in any two people because it shows up differently in every single solitary person. Every one of the diagnosis, it shows up differently. No two people are exactly alike. So it's a spectrum. It's labeled as a spectrum for that reason. Asperger's syndrome was a description of someone who's what used to be classified as high functioning on the autism spectrum that had these nuances that were um, more verbal than less, more perhaps OCD tendency than less. Oftentimes, they were exhibiting extraordinary gifts and talents. There was that term savant, where gifts inside of a person with autism's brain were so extreme that they were put in a whole nother category all together. And I'm talking about phenomenal, breathtaking artistry or perfect pitch. There's something called perfect pitch that some young uh, girls and boys or men and women with autism have in which they can actually perfectly hear and play back or recite or sing a note on perfect pitch. There are musicians that have autism whose brains can hear a piece of music and recite it back after hearing it once on the piano or on another instrument. Now, those cases are extreme. There's also artists who can see a city or a spatial diagram of a city, and they can sketch it out with extraordinary detail. So what I'm describing is it's pretty rare, but it does exist, and we have to honor it, and we have to acknowledge it. Then there is the other swing of the, pe- of the pendulum, the other side of the spectrum, and that is those who are incredibly challenged with communication. Oftentimes they are classified as nonverbal. Now they still utilize nonverbal communication, sometimes sign language, sometimes iPads or tablets or gadgets, technological gadgets, that allow for them to communicate by typing and then that mechanism Or computer will say the word or it'll have a voice component to it that will say the word if the uh, boy or girl types the word in. There's what's called PECS systems, which are pictures. And uh, the boy or girl can actually choose or select a series of pictures to describe the story or the thing that they're trying to communicate. So there are many different modalities for communication for those who are not yet or are not verbal. Back when my son was diagnosed, the huge push was to get them to be verbal. One of the first books I ever read was called Let Me Hear Your Voice. And when I read this book, it was the story of a mom who had not one but two children on the autism spectrum, and it was a story of how she was able to she was able to move her son and her daughter to the point where they lost their diagnosis altogether and they were able to actually attend Typical neurotypical classrooms, without any hint of anybody ever knowing that autism was a part of their diagnosis. Now that was called the best outcome or best case scenario. When my son was first diagnosed, and I read that book, and I read a whole bunch of books about training, discrete trial training, behavioral therapy, um, and was trying really hard to find a mechanism for my son to communicate. The big push was verbal. And so this woman in Manhattan who wrote that book, she had a lot of resources. I mean, her family was incredibly wealthy. So they had resources and could pay out of pocket hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to treat her children, her daughter, and then her son. Me, when we got the diagnosis, not so much. And at the time, there were no funding mechanisms for therapy. So we would scrimp and save. We would pay our therapists cash. uh, And then we would have to put groceries and other household things on credit cards just to try to get the ball rolling on some of the therapies. So that was in and of itself an entire journey. Now, I'm going to talk about the different pathways people take. That was the pathway I took. After Benjamin was first diagnosed, and I went through a lot of the grieving process, the sadness, the anger, the confusion, the the feeling totally out of control, the extreme and extraordinary guilt. What did I do? How did I do this? What happened? What did did I do something wrong when I was pregnant? Did I eat the wrong things? Was I too stressed out? Was I what happened? What happened? searching, finding, trying to find answers. Um, when I had exhausted all of those possibilities and couldn't find the answer, I started shifting the blame to somebody else. Did somebody else do something? Did, did somebody else make me too stressed out? Did I not have enough support in my pregnancy? Did the baby not have enough support? And then shortly thereafter, I switched to the vaccines because after both my, old, my sons were babies, after they were born, I didn't know anything about vaccines or uh, what people were talking about in terms of vaccine injury because this was the early 90s and it was not popular content or information that was widely distributed back then. So I'm not going to go uh, deep dive into the vaccine situation here and now. That's for you to investigate and decide for yourself. Here's what I will tell you. We did an investigation. And again, I unwrapped this a little bit in my first three episodes. We did an investigation and did a class action suit after finding that my son's hepatitis B shot when he was a baby had extraordinary high levels of thimerosal, which is mercury. It's how they would preserve those shots. So um, 10-year class action lawsuit, Big Pharma wins each and every single solitary time back then. Again, this was the early to mid-90s. Now, parents who are finding vaccine injuries in their children, uh, or researchers and scientists who are actually finding and able to prove vaccine injury in a lot of kids, they are being awarded compensation to help with treatments. That was not the case in the mid 90s. So um, but but just the whole vaccine convers- conversation is one to have, it's one to think about, it's one to contemplate, it's one that every single solitary parent on the planet who is planning to have a child needs to absolutely thoroughly research. Because here's what I do know to be true, regardless of what you think about the vaccines or some of them or all of them or none of them, here's the reality when the CDC increased their vaccine schedule, their mandated vaccine schedule, when they increased the number of vaccines required for young kids, both in infancy, toddler, and early childhood, the incidence of autism increased by 110%. 110% increase in those following years after the CDC increased that schedule. Now, you and I don't have to be rocket scientists to put two and two together and say, "Houston, seems as though we have some type of a problem here." Other people look at the climate and the environment and the, you know, the the level of toxins that we all take in now these days with air pollution, water, food, GMOs, you name it. There's lots to think about here. That's not all of what I want to unpack with you today. We can unpack those things later. For a newly diagnosed family, you need to know you're not alone. One in 40 kids are being diagnosed with autism, and it is described as a neurodevelopmental condition of variable severity, okay, which has effects that can be recognized from early childhood on really around the age of two. Um, I think the most popular age of diagnosis is four, but they're getting better at detecting it a little early on these days with some Special types of testing more along the lines of two years old and it causes difficulty with communication social interactions um, And by restricted or repetitive patterns of thought and behavior These are the classic signs or symptoms of autism now We won't know thoroughly what any given child goes through in their own personal experience But here's what I can tell you. I believe that in a child with autism, their body is betraying them on every level. It's almost like being trapped inside of a space that you can't navigate on your own because the body betrays by getting looped into these neurological loops and patterns of thought and behavior, and it causes this stimulatory repetitive behavior in many cases. And it's like the neural pathways get looped looped, 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 and it causes repetition. It can cause perseverative behavior, which just means being sort of highly concentrated or focused on one thing, having difficulty moving off of that one subject or topic or object or thing. Okay. These are all presentations of autism. Now it is more common for a boy to be diagnosed than a girl. In fact, boys are four times more likely to be diagnosed than girls are. And they, they, who's they? Scientists think that this may in part be because of the chromosomal makeup of boys and how it is different from girls. Research is still being done on that. Nonetheless, we do know that there are four times more boys being diagnosed than girls, even still to this day. So there are Lots of different things to, to process as your newly diagnosed son or daughter or loved one is, is kind of in the throes of this, what do we do now, right? First, you have to process your own feelings and your own grief. Do that. Grieve if you must. I remember um, going through the various stages, and one of my stages was guilt that I was grieving. Like, how dare I grieve as though there's something wrong? there's nothing wrong, this is just a thing, it doesn't make anything wrong, my son is not bad or wrong, there's nothing wrong with him, it's just something that's going on inside of him right now. I actually felt guilty, grieving, but the reality is what I needed to grieve was the relationship and the parenting relationship I was going to have with my second oldest baby boy. It was not going to be the typical experience And it took me a while to comprehend, accept, and then embrace that, okay? You don't have to do this all at once. In fact, don't even try. I'm 25 years into this journey. So I am the light at the end of the tunnel telling you it's a journey, and there are incredible, beautiful, beautiful lights along the way. And you're on a journey. So in the very beginning of this journey, when you're first starting out, that train's moving down the track, grieve, cry, be angry if you need to, have a sounding board, process, journal, write things down. Part of my, and and what are you grieving? Again, let's revisit. What are you grieving? You're just, you're simply grieving the fact that the relationship that you originally thought that you were going to have or the dynamic as a parent and child is going to look different than what you expected and maybe, maybe what you hoped. Now it can be more beautiful than you thought. It can be more beautiful than you hoped. That's for sure. But in the beginning, that's where I was. I, I wanted to help my son. All I knew was somebody was telling me something was wrong and I needed to Now fix it, fix it, fix it. How can I fix it? So I dove into research. And I researched the different types of therapies. Now, there are three pathways to take and then combinations of each. When you get to the what to do, what are we going to do about this, if anything? There's the route of therapies, there's the route of the educational system, and there's the route of doing nothing and just living one day at a time the route I chose to take was the route of therapy. And there are many different kinds of therapies. When Benjamin was a baby, what was popular was LOVAS or discrete trial training. And then there was something called verbal behavioral therapy training as well. It was very, all of these were very data driven. So when they would hit a milestone, you would take the data and you would, you would have to build upon that to generalize each and every skill in order to build upon those skills to a new skill. Let me tell you, I'll take the example of eye contact first, and if we were going to ever teach uh, these kids how to verbalize or learn verbal behavior, because most of them were not verbally communicating, they would make noises. You better believe that. Lots and lots and lots of noises. They were not engaging verbal communication or language. So what we would have to do is first we would have to catch them accidentally looking at us or we would have to try to get them to look at us, and then the minute they made eye contact, we would have to do what's called reinforce, and we would have to reinforce that behavior with a reward. And the reward had to be a lever that was something that the child really wanted. I know people used to use Skittles; it was called Skittle therapy back then. Kind of makes me laugh because my son never liked Skittles; he wasn't a candy kind of a kid. Couldn't, didn't care. Um, so you have to find. We had to find something that he would really love, that he would enjoy, and that would be a reward for him doing the very behavior we wanted to see more of. Okay. So that's the behavioral therapy. And there are many different types. There was that, there's cognitive behavioral therapy, early intervention, IEBT. That's what we legislated for. And that's what I did with my son. Yes, we had to legislate for help for that for our children at the time, because there wasn't any. So it was early intensive behavioral therapy. Then there's the educational and school-based therapies. Now those did not work well for my son, and they, they weren't intensive enough, in my opinion, to get him actually speaking. And remember, the whole goal here, the, my goal was to facilitate whatever my son needed to help him reach his full potential, whatever that looks like, okay? Again, there are different thought patterns. I'm not saying what I did was the, the way. That was just the way I chose. Who is to say that doing no therapy allows the child to reach their full potential? Not me, because I'm not convinced that there's one right way. It's just the way me in my mid-20s knew, and it was what was available at the time. There's joint attention therapy, there's medication treatments, there's nutritional therapies, there's chelation, which, which some, I remember some parents doing, that's trying to uh, rush push compounds through the child's body that would bind to heavy metals and flush the heavy metals or toxins out of the system. Uh, they were finding a lot of mercury, no coincidence there, in a lot of these kids for various reasons. Many parents thought it was because of the shots that were preserved by mercury or thimerosal. Uh, with the triple vial shots, that's what they were using as a preservative. Some thought it was coming from other sources, the heavy metals, okay? Then there was occupational therapy, speech therapy. I mean, the list goes on and on. There was one kind of therapy called sunshine therapy, and I'll never forget it uh, because I met a couple of parents who were doing it, and it was where the parent or the therapist would do would mimic the child, would just simply do every behavior they did. The idea was to try to get into their world instead of trying to get them into ours. It was kind of cool. I tried it a couple times with my baby boy and he he looked at me like he thought it was nuts. And I felt nuts, like rolling around on the ground and doing whatever he did. Like he would jump off the couch and I was not about to jump off the couch. So um, that didn't work for me anyway for very long, but there were a couple of very advantageous parents for whom it did. Now, whatever the end result was, I don't know. I didn't follow those cases all the way through, but everybody, again, is on their own journey. I remember also brain gym therapy, where uh, you do a series of um, crossing over the brain hemispheres, the meridians, in order to help stimulate better cognition. And there were all sorts of obstacle courses and games and things that we would do. And I did that with my son a couple of summers as well. So therapeutic models and modalities, there are plenty out there. That's one pathway. Another pathway is the educational system. In other countries, every country looks different and every country has a different system, right? So um, in the United States, the educational system has resource rooms. They've got rooms where they take and try to do some types of therapies with the kids Again, my personal experience back in the mid, late 90s, early 2000s was not a good one. Um, I tried to bring in some actual behavioral therapists into the classrooms and into the schools to train them how to do some of the therapies um, so that, that they could be efficient in really getting these kids learning. And they just, it's not their model. It's just not what they were looking to do. They were just sort of, I think at the time, looking to provide for them some types of sensory integration therapies and things like that. So again, that was not my pathway. That's not what I found to be effective. So we didn't spend much time in the school district. We did more intensive therapies with Ben so that he we could give him a mechanism to communicate. That was really my goal. Um, and then there's the pathway of doing nothing at all. Just nothing at all in terms of any type of therapeutic model. And there are parents who do that and they They believe that they are completely and totally accepting their child as is and that this diagnosis is a beautiful thing and that trying to change anything about that child's behavior or ability to communicate would be kind of a violation of how the child is showing up in the planet. And again, you would have asked me about this 20 years ago, I would have jumped up and down and said, no, 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 you have to get them into some therapy early on because it will help their brain continue to learn but my friend, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't know. 25 years later, I don't know. I know that I've seen kids and in, my, in the organization that I own and that provides services to young adults with autism and related conditions. I interface daily with many children who never had any type of therapy. And they're incredibly amazing and delightful. And they have found their own modalities to communicate. And it's perfect. So the next place I want to go with you today is just giving you a couple of ideas for resources if this is a newly diagnosed situation for you and your family, okay? Every country is different. Again, so I'm going to speak broadly when I talk about you being in another country. Whatever the community or human resources or Department of Development or Department of Human Services looks like in your country that is typically where resources can be found there are many many private resources online as well if you have internet and you are able to do some research there that's going to be the best course for you if you are outside of the united states in the united states in whatever state you are in what i would recommend that you do just parent to parent is Call the county that you live in or visit the website of the county that you live in and find out what the Department of Human Services has to offer. Many, many, in fact, most counties these days have a Department of Human Services or Developmental Disabilities Services. That's even more specific. If they do, get a hold of them and simply let them know you've got a newly diagnosed child and that you are looking for available resources in the area. Now, when you do that, they will probably offer to have a nurse assessor or some type of assessor come to either your home or to visit you online and do an assessment of your level of need for support. If they do, what that will do is it'll provide some sense of eligibility for what are called waivered services, waivered funded services. The waiver is a mechanism for funding that was developed in the mid, I believe it was the mid-70s, and it was a way to keep people out of institutions. Remember, when somebody showed up that looked outside of what we know as neurotypical, or let's use those air quotes very strongly here, normal, normal. For now, let's use the phrase neurotypical. When somebody would show up as outside of being neurotypical or having special needs, they would institutionalize them in the most inhumane, horrible, and disrespectful ways, period. So groups got together and initiated the end to that madness and wanting a way to provide the families a means to keep their loved one at home with them. Now it was going to mean they needed some support. Parents needed respite. They needed help. They needed therapies, physical and behavioral, sometime in their own homes. Parents needed to be able to sleep at night from time to time. You know, if they were if they were um, wrestling with or experiencing the family member with some significant behavioral issues, they needed help. So the waivered services was there's a federal grant that matches the state provided services then they break it down county by county and counties on each state get their own allocations for waivered funded services okay i know i'm speaking a foreign language to you right now if you're new to this and none of this makes sense but here is the first step to take if you're brand new at this diagnosis you're going to want to call the county department of human services in your county and if there's a developmental disabilities unit Perfect. Call. Schedule to have a meeting with an assessor. They can walk you then through what an assessment looks like, what will happen during the assessment. It's usually a series of questions, honestly. And they will find out and try to assess how much support you need. Then they will give you resources. They will tell you, you know what, we believe that your son or daughter is eligible for what's called a waiver. And waivered services can help therapies, treatments, uh, or services for you, including respite services for your family. Here's how to apply for that. They will walk you through that. Oftentimes, then they will also connect you with a county caseworker, which will then provide a different series of potential options or resources for you. But first things first, you'll want to make that first initial phone call. Get the ball rolling somewhere, get your family some support. Be sure to find a sounding board, somebody you can talk to, cry to, question with, be angry, not at, but with, you know, vent to, in other words, and get yourself some support. You, I promise you, are going to come to know this beautiful soul with this diagnosis. You're going to come to know their soul as magnificent and beautiful because they are. But your family also needs some support. You need some care. You need some rest, you need nutrition, hydration, and you need the strength and the resources to move your family into this journey. And I just want to tell you, the journey has beautiful pit stops. It truly does. I I also want to encourage you in one more thing, and then um, we will pick this back up in the second of the series. Here's what I want to leave you with today. If you are a family member with a newly diagnosed loved one with autism, You have been chosen for a very, very special and specific reason. I know that sounds strange, and maybe you don't want to hear that right now. Maybe that makes you feel angry, or maybe that makes you feel sad, and you think to yourself, I didn't ask for this. I didn't want to be chosen. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. It's okay. We all feel that way from time to time. We did. I did. I felt that way. I still have moments where I think, oh boy, I don't know. This is going to be, it's going to be tougher to me. It's going to require a little bit more patience for me today, which means I got to put my own oxygen mask on, feed myself, fill my tank, provide resources for myself so that I am strong and have the wherewithal and the, you need the bandwidth to have some patience through the process. You're going to need the bandwidth to have a little bit of patience So you absolutely have to care for yourself, okay? But you have been chosen. And if you are a person of faith and you believe in your creator, you believe in the divine, you believe in God, how could you not? I'm just asking you, how could you not? Look around. Look at something beautiful out a window and ask yourself, how is that there? Who created this magnificence? But I believe that you've been chosen for a very special reason for such a time as this. There is something that lives on the inside of you that can handle this. There is something on the inside of you that will move on and into and through this journey. And not only, not only will you handle this and master this, but through the journey, my friend, you are going to provide encouragement and light to somebody else. And that's a fact. And that's just part of why you have been chosen to care for an earth angel who doesn't have the wherewithal or the means right now to care for themselves. The Reality is there's a component of compassion as part of this. You've been selected to honor and to care for somebody who isn't able to do that for themselves. You're special. You're different. You're amazing. You will get through this. You'll take it one day at a time, like we've talked about. And then as you're taking it one day at a time, you will close your eyes and you will envision your tomorrow looking better, brighter, and hopeful because it's going to be. So I leave you there, my friend, with that message. You are special. You've been chosen. You have been asked to care and provide for an earth angel. You have greatness in your presence. And we're on this journey together. I can't wait to connect with you on the next episode. Thanks again for listening. Thanks so much for listening to The Stephanie Stevens Show. Please remember to subscribe so we can stay connected and you never miss an episode of the podcast. Oh, and if you haven't left a rating yet, please be sure to do so. It helps incredible people like you find the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode.